Should teachers be good role models? And if so, how should they go about it? Hello, I'm Colin Klupik, and you're listening to Learning Capacity. This podcast is brought to you by LearnFast, improving student learning outcomes with educational neuroscience since 1999. If you're looking for science-based language, learning and reading programs for your school or child, visit learnfasthome.com.au. And remember, you can subscribe to this podcast absolutely for free. Search for Learning Capacity on iTunes or visit soundcloud.com slash learnfast. Cultures of Thinking is an educational framework that emerged from the work of Ron Richard and the Project Zero team at Harvard University. This episode belongs to an eight-part series where I delve into each of the eight cultural forces that, according to Ron Richard, we must master in order to truly transform our schools. My guest in the series is Simon Brooks, who spent years implementing cultures of thinking into his classrooms and now helps teachers introduce the framework into their schools. In this series, we'll take a closer look at each of the eight cultural forces, with an emphasis on practical ways to implement the theory behind it all. This is part four, where we discuss the cultural force of modelling. Richard tells the story of Dr. Daniel Tosterson, who was the dean of the Harvard Medical School in the 1970s. And what I like about this is that this idea is therefore not entirely new. And uh, he was already at that time thinking about the issue of students being able to access far more information than we could possibly hope to tell or deliver them. Mm. And uh, he wanted to shift the model from acquisition of knowledge to the use of knowledge to solve problems. And I find that interesting because there's a lot of talk about that sort of thing these days. And what he said was, we must acknowledge again that the most important, indeed the only thing we have to offer our students is ourselves, because everything else they can read in a book or discover independently, usually with better understanding than our efforts can convey. And then he went on to say, I believe that the modern jargon for this is role models. Interesting, yeah. that, interesting that he says the modern jargon back in the yeah. 70s. Now, the idea here is that a role model doesn't necessarily mean an exemplar. Can you talk us through the difference between a role model and an exemplar? Yeah, I mean, uh, perhaps the first interesting thing to reflect on is I'm, I'm glad that Ron went back to talk about Tosterson in the 1970s with this idea of well, let, let's not focus too much on knowledge acquisition, let's focus more on knowledge for solving problems. I mean, I think we could probably go further back than the 1970s. I reckon we could probably go back to Socrates. Yeah, that's a long way. Perhaps even before Socrates. I mean, and that was the that was the core of the Socratic method. I think this the idea of asking questions in order to equip people with the capacity, with the disposition to be able to solve future problems. And I think that was the heart, core of what Socrates was talking about. Um, so it's such an important question, and therefore it's probably a, a question that's always been around. Um, it's probably just even more prevalent in modern times because of the presence of things like Google and the internet and information is just so accessible now, it's so easy to get that it makes using that information even more important because it's been this leveling effect of information being utterly free and utterly accessible for everybody. Um, Your question was around the lines of being an exemplar. To be a model does not mean to be an exemplar. And that's such a fascinating question. I think if we position ourselves as a role model, there is an, there's a sense that we're, we're, we're representing ourselves along the lines of what it might look like to be a thinker and learner. Yeah. But the word 
exemplar suggests that we're that we're priming ourselves as the perfect example of what it means to be a thinker and a learner. Yeah, in other words, the difference between perhaps being somewhat like me as opposed to being me. That's right, and I don't think anybody wants to be me, and not even I want to be me. <laughs> yes. If, if we set ourselves up as being an exemplar, that the perfect example of a thinker and a learner, I actually think that goes completely against the grain of building a culture of thinking anyway. There isn't any right or wrong exemplar for being a thinker and a learner. We're all muddling our way through life, um, exploring different ideas, making mistakes as we go. And that's why it's good to role model that so that students understand, oh, yeah, well, it's actually it's, it's just about making mistakes. And I don't think there is an exemplar of, of what that looks like. But this, we can certainly role model as teachers. be interesting, wouldn't it, if, uh, if uh, a student said, oh, look, I'm just going to make myself just like you. So not model myself off you, but I'm going to copy you. It'd be interesting then to look at the behaviours of that student and then think, really, is that what I'm like? <laughs> well, yeah, it could be like, interesting holding up a, a mirror to ourselves and seeing what their perceptions are of how, how we are. Well, I'd like to talk about mirror neurons in a minute. But uh, first of all, I'd just like to suggest then that if we are to model ourselves, or uh, sorry, if we are to be role models to our students, that implies vulnerability. Mm. In other words, we have to be, uh, there's a certain element of how we're opening ourselves to our students. And I guess teachers are always trying to juggle that. How much of ourselves do we open up? I mean, that's, that's, I guess that's the unanswerable question in some sense. But what's your take on that? I think it's healthy for us to reveal ourselves as utterly intellectually vulnerable. There are many things we don't know, and I think it's fine to communicate that to the young people that, that we're working with. You know, Perhaps it's unhealthy to communicate to them the, the suggestion that we are some sort of omniscient being, all-knowing creature. Um, are we are we sending them the message that their goal is to become like that themselves, and then perhaps we're sending them a message that mistake making isn't isn't worthwhile? I love it when I hear teachers saying things like this to the students in their class. You know, well, what a great question! Uh, I don't know the answer, but maybe we could both go away and do some research and compare notes next time. <laughs> That's uh, a much more um, descriptive way of. Uh providing that sort of an answer. I mean, I've been known to say things like, uh, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, thank you for providing an, an example as to how I can uh, extend my own answers. That's, uh, that's very helpful. But I guess the idea of intellectual vulnerability can be quite uh, uncomfortable for, for many people. If, 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 um, if they are feeling uncomfortable about that, what, what advice have you got for them? I think it's, it also depends on career stage and context. Um, I think for for newly qualified teachers who may be feeling intellectually vulnerable anyway, just by means of being in, in a new profession, that could be even more challenging for them to to reveal that you know, oh wow, I've never actually thought about it in that way before. When when a child shares a really insightful comment, because they might feel that it undermines them in the in the eyes of that child. So I think it's probably context dependent. But to answer your question, you know, how can we get better at it? Well, it's like anything if, to, to get better at it. We've just got to keep doing it. Um, the more intellectual vulnerability we model to them, the more they receive the message that it's okay to be intellectually vulnerable. And, and then the whole thing turns on itself and we start building this really rich culture of thinking where we know that, hey, 
teacher and students together are are working on constructing understanding together. That's much more exciting, isn't it? Yeah. We're at the coalface trying to construct understanding together rather than I have the understanding and I'm going to uh, bestow it upon you lot. Yeah, exciting and less mundane because teaching, mm. in you know, given the fact that you know the, the years roll by, the terms roll by, things can become mundane. So it's exciting and also less mundane, I think. Yeah. Richard talks about mirror neurons. Now, obviously, we're starting to talk about the brain. How much of our actions and behaviours, do you think, are being picked up by our students simply mm. as they observe and watch us, as those mirror neurons in the brain start activating? Okay, so I'll flag up to start with. I'm, I'm no great expert on mirror neurons. And I, what I'm interested in, and it's certainly drawing on recent neurological research, that's, that suggests that human beings are wired um, in such a way that we vicariously experience events and feelings through simply through observation of others so the first thing my mind turns to is when you see those um sometimes dreadful tv shows and youtube channels where where there is somebody in canada on an out of control toboggan and it's um and it's sliding slaloming down a hill and then slams into a tree and as it hits the tree our mirror neurons fire and we sort of wince for them yeah (laughs) i think i think that's how i sort of make sense of this idea of of mirror neurons. And so in terms of teaching and learning, well, what we're thinking is that if children observe us loving our learning, being really curious about the world around us and, and experiencing awe when we explore that world around us, then hopefully their mirror neurons are going to fire and they're going to share that feeling. And that's the value, I think, here of what we're talking about. Can, can I tell you, Colin, about my English teacher when I was at school? Yes, please do. So this is many years ago. Um, I went to a school called Edenham High School in South London. It sounds like a very English school. It was a very English school. It was a government school. Um, and I had mixed experiences at that school. But I had one amazing teacher. And the guy was called Mr. Vigers. <laughs> that, fact, doesn't, he, that doesn't sound so English. <laughs> no, that's right. I, mean, I think his name was Richard Vigers, and when he wrote his name, it looked like Raviguts. So we all called him Raviguts. So that was the, the nickname. Um, I, I just have, and, I, and I, if, if Mr. Vigers is still alive, it would be wonderful if he could um, if he could hear what I'm saying to you now. Because yeah, we should get him on the show. Well, absolutely, and because he he really was the man that inspired me to love English, and I have one really standout memory which is that he was teaching me and the rest of the class um, Shakespeare's play Macbeth. Um, and I remember him taking on the persona of Lady Macbeth, um, who towards the middle and the end of the play is unravelling because of the part she played in The Murder of Duncan. So she's walking around sleepwalking, rubbing her hands together furiously, saying, out damn spot, out I say. Who would have thought the old man had so much blood in him? <laughs> Sounds and awful. I remember, and I remember Mr. Vigus performing the speech in that way. So immediately we're engaged. But he, what it was, I think, as I reflect on it, is he he just demonstrated wonder at the craftsmanship of Shakespeare's language. He showed through everything he said how much in awe he was of the way that Shakespeare employed metaphor to such amazing effect and in that speech that the excess blood is a metaphor for Lady Macbeth's feeling feelings of guilt that she can't ever escape from and this sense of awe that he showed 
at Shakespeare's language. I think it helped my mirror neurons fire. And it was a big part of engendering that same love of Shakespeare in me that he had himself. Um, so what a wonderful gift that he gave to me. What a wonderful gift it is that teachers give to our students. When we demonstrate our passion, students pick up on that passion. So we can have an enormous impact just by being there. Yeah, in, in a really engaged and passionate way. More from my discussion with Simon coming up. If you'd like to catch up on all of the episodes in this eight-part series, then check out the Learning Capacity archives. You can search for Learning Capacity on iTunes or visit soundcloud.com slash learnfast. Richard talks a lot about different types of apprenticeships that uh, are related to the idea of modelling. He talks about two in particular, um, dispositional and cognitive. What's the difference between those? Yeah, I think um, it's a subtle difference. I think I think the difference between those two forms of apprenticeship is essentially deliberateness. If we think about what a, a dispositional apprenticeship is, the notion there is that we as teachers are modelling all of the time in our interactions with children the type of thinking dispositions that we hope that they will develop. So in our time with them, if we're connection makers, if we, if we, if we are curious, if we show that we're healthily sceptical, that we're evaluative thinkers, then by demonstrating the presence of that disposition in ourselves, that, that we hope the children will pick up and mirror that disposition in, in their own development. And that side of things, that dispositional apprenticeship, we, we do that even without thinking about it. it. It just happens that they pick up on those on that disposition that we have, and, and hopefully it becomes part of their disposition. The cognitive apprenticeship, there's more deliberateness involved in that. There, what we do is we make a particular point of making thinking visible, of surfacing it and making it a point of discussion and once we've done that, once we've made it visible, where well, we can coach them, we can correct the thinking if it's wrong, we can offer feedback, we can we can celebrate the thinking, but we're bringing it to the surface in a deliberate way. And I think that's at the core of that notion of cognitive apprenticeship. So in a cognitive apprenticeship, though, how do we, again, this, this comes down to making things visible. How do we take what is essentially cognitive, like a, a brain type function and make it visible? I think... One really powerful way to do that is through the use of thinking routines. I, if I think back to a lesson where I, or a learning experience where I might have accomplished that, hopefully in quite a powerful way as an English teacher, I think back to um, a time when with some year 10 students we were studying Holocaust texts. So texts about the Holocaust, one of which was the film Schindler's List, which is a very, and this was in a Jewish school, by the way, so a very confronting film to watch with year 10 children in a Jewish school. Yeah, no doubt. And I remember um, the way I, I got into that was before we watched the film, and interestingly, hardly any, even though, even though they came from Jewish families, very few of them had seen the film, which I thought was interesting. Um, before we watched the film, I started, I engaged with them in, in a thinking routine, which is called Three, Two, One Bridge. So I said to them, okay, think about the Holocaust, and they know a lot about the Holocaust. What are three statements you can make about it? What are two questions you have about it? 
And what's one analogy or simile that you can come up with to represent a key idea of the Holocaust? And then what we did is we watched Schindler's List together. And afterwards, I got them to then come up with three new statements, two new questions and one analogy. And here's the most important thing, got them to reflect on how and why their thinking had changed. How had watching Schindler's List developed, enriched, altered their understanding of the Holocaust and why that was so, such an important moment in history? And here's what that routine does. It surfaces their thinking. It makes their thinking visible at the beginning so that after a learning experience, they can come back and think, wow. Was that my thinking then? So it becomes tangible. It becomes part of a cognitive apprenticeship. Let's consider modelling for independence. We often hear about uh, trying to make our students independent learners or, or self-directed learners. Mm. But I, th I think that sometimes they can give the impression that we're just handing it over to them and then uh, off they go and we just kind of sit around watching them being self-directed or independent. Mm. But I guess a, a modelling approach is, is more than that. How do we go about this practically in a way that uh, is effective and doesn't leave our students stranded, at least not stranded too quickly? Yeah, we've talked in a, in a previous interview about this. And I, um, my position on this is, is I think, strong, is I, I don't think we get independent learners and self-directed learners by backing off um, and, and basically saying, uh, you know, here's a booklet of resources, here's a nice room to look at them in, off you go go and be independent. Um, I think they can easily just become self-misdirected learners <laughs> if we do that. So this is where the modeling thing comes in so much more. You know, your question was, you know, how do we actually do this practically? For me, so it's in the time we spend with our students. There's a, there's a, a core routine that everybody who knows about cultures of thinking seems to know about. <laughs> so it, it can, it can unfortunately become a bit, um, sort of tired I think sometimes but cliched perhaps yeah exactly but it, it shouldn't be because it's so wonderful it's the routine see think wonder um and at its heart what is see think wonder well it's 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 three very distinct intellectual moves the first one is see so if you slow down and pay close attention what do you notice and the second one is think having slowed down and looked closely what can you infer what theories have you got about what you've seen? And then finally, the final stage wonder, you know, what questions have you got left over? What do you wonder about this thing that you've looked at? If as teachers we use routines like see, think, wonder over and over and over and over again with our students, and if every time we use it, we name and notice the thinking, we talk about the difference between observation and inference, then slowly but surely they become independent thinkers who understand the difference between observation and inference mm. and are able to do it even when we're not there. That's the idea of thinking routines. It's about trying to embed ways of thinking into the identity of young people. Something I'd like to talk to you from a, a very practical perspective in terms of modeling for independence is uh, something I come across in the classroom quite a bit. Can I talk to you about that? Please, please do. 
So I teach uh, d- design and technology type subjects, and uh, I say type subjects because it's, it can be so creative sometimes, you, you suddenly wonder, what am I actually teaching? <laughs> but it's effectively a creative endeavor, and uh, I'll give a task to students where I say, well, look, here's your design brief, and uh, here's what I'd like you to consider. And in some cases, what I've done is I've, I've actually gone and built a few potential solutions to the design problem. So, look, here's something that I've done, um, mm. you know, to... To just give them a little bit of uh, stimulus material and say, look, it is actually possible to come up with a solution. So you're not just sort of leaving them, you know, to, on the, to their own devices too quickly. Yeah. But then sometimes I find that the, a problem is that uh, I then start looking through sketchbooks and having a look at a few drawings, and I think, oh, gee, that's an interesting design that I made last week. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and, I, and there's that, that that whole issue of imitation or, or copying comes out now it, look it's it's flattering to think that a student likes your idea that they actually start to work on their own idea based on yours but that's not really the point yeah uh, or the idea so how do we avoid modeling to the point where our students begin to imitate or copy us i think that probably speaks to the difference between modeling what to do and modeling how to think so first of all, it sounds like, uh, you know, you're a wonderful teacher there, Colin, and, and <laughs> fantastic that you're, you know, given that you're, you're sort of um, walking the talk or talking the walk, you know, that you're, you're showing that you can actually engage in these manufacturing and creation processes that you want them to be able to do. Um, but it's interesting that, you, that you, you think that sometimes if you show, if you give them, if you model to them what to do, that they end up just doing the same thing. Um, mm. And maybe that's that is the issue. If we model to them what to do, then they can just do it. But if we model to them how to think in in one particular context, but then give them something different to think about, then they can't just replicate this the same thing back at us because they're applying rather than recreating. Uh, to just to try to make that more tangible. An example that I've got to try to support that, and I'm afraid it's not in a technology classroom context, but in an English classroom context, one of the thinking moves we want children to be able to perform is we want them to be able to evaluate. Here's the interesting thing I ask all of your listeners to do just for fun to see what happens. Ask your students, however old they are, what does the word evaluate mean? You know, what are, what are we doing intellectually when evaluating? And in my experience, not many children have an answer to that. Yeah, it's a tough one. I've tried that a few times. It, it, and that's because it, there's a lot of complex thinking moves happening there. So one of the strategies that I developed over the years with that one was just to start um, telling a story to them, a little made-up story. So... Um, We've got two minutes for, to me for me to indulge in this story, Colin. Yes, we do. So this is what this this requires a massive leap of the imagination. Um, I say to them, "Can you imagine that I'm a trainee mechanic?" Now, if my wife was listening to this, she would be laughing right now because I'm not <laughs> I'm, I'm not a particularly accomplished mechanic. But so maybe trainee mechanic is actually not too bad to imagine that. Um, and I'll say to some students, where, "What I want you to imagine is that I'm a trainee mechanic, and you, Bob, you're my boss." And then I'll say, and right, you, Jane, Jane, you've just brought your car in and it's not working. You've pushed it up, pushed it into the garage and it's not working. You've brought it to me to fix. Bob, your job is to evaluate my performance as a mechanic in fixing Jane's car. So then I'll say, right, what I do then is, um, okay, I get underneath the car. Um, I have a close look at it. 
And I conclude that I think the problem is it needs an oil change. Uh, this is where this is going to go wrong now, Colin, because I've... I've <laughs> okay. anyway, so what I do is I get underneath it. I pull out the oil filter. Um, then, I, um, then I go to the other side of the engine I, and I let all of the existing oil out. I put a new oil filter back in. Maybe this is right. Then uh, fill it up with new oil. I've effectively changed the oil. Jane gets back into her car and... Before she starts the engine, I say to Bob, right, Bob, what's your evaluation of my performance? And Bob says, 10 out of 10. Well done. You've, you've changed the oil beautifully. And then Jane starts the engine and the car doesn't start. So then I say to the students, was Bob correct in his evaluation of my performance as giving me a 10 out of 10? And the kids go, no, 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 of course not, because the, because the car's still not working. Mm-hmm. So then I say to them, well, What's the problem here then? Why, why is Bob's evaluation of my performance wrong? And they say, well, because he wasn't evaluating the right thing because the purpose that you as a training mechanic had in mind was to fix the car and you didn't accomplish that. And so what I end up being able to communicate to them is that when we evaluate something, we are commenting on how effective or successful it is in relation to its intended purpose. I get that message across to them via a fictional story about me as a mechanic. Then I say to them, now, can you evaluate the effectiveness of that poem? So they're no longer imitating me, to come back to your question. It's no longer about imitating because it's a completely different thing. It's it's not a car, it's a poem. But what they're doing is that they are applying those same thinking skills and that's how we get away from this idea of copying. So rather than saying to my students, here's one I prepared earlier, <laughs> I, yes. get, I get to say to them something like, here's a product that deserves an evaluation. Why don't we try evaluating this particular product? Yeah. Or a complete, if, if, you're, if you're getting them to make um, uh, a box, show them an example of something you've designed, which is a completely different product, but uses some of the same skills so that it becomes about the thinking and the processes rather than the replication. There's only one problem with this whole idea, and that is that uh, being able to use the old phrase, here's one I prepared earlier, just happens to be a favourite of mine. <laughs> well, in that case, I think you should carry on doing it. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a Blue Peter phrase for our English viewers. That's, that's where we hear that phrase a lot. Simon, it's been great to speak with you. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Colin. You've been listening to Learning Capacity, brought to you by LearnFast. If you'd like to know more about LearnFast and science-based language learning and reading programs for your school or child, visit learnfasthome.com.au. If you'd like to know more about the Cultures of Thinking framework, then visit ronrichart.com or the Harvard University Project Zero website at pz.harvard.edu. And if you'd like to know more about my guest, Simon Brooks, then visit simonbrookseducation.com. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now.